Of course, here they are. Uh, the children of Israel have watched the Lord miraculously stop the waters of the Jordan, and they entered uh, into the promised land. They have watched Him miraculously uh, drive the walls of Jericho down, and they sacked Jericho. In the process, they had a little issue with one man's disobedience, and it caused them to suffer a defeat at a real small town the next one up the road. They took care of the problem in chapter number 7, and in chapter number 8, they're back on mission again, taking care of business. So, verse number 1 of chapter 8 opens like this. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to AIC. I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, here's our word, and he sent them out at night. He commanded them saying, See, you're going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out to meet us as at the first, we will flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us as at the first, so we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hands. Then it shall be when you have seized the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua, here's our word again, sent them away and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. May the 6th of 1990 was a red-letter watershed day in my life and Heather's life as well. Because it was on that day that God revealed to us that His, His desire for us was to preach His Word in a pastoral capacity. So on that day, we surrendered our lives to whatever it was that the Lord had in front of us. And um, I promise you, it's turned out to be a lot different than what I thought it was, but nonetheless, we put our yes on the table that day. And we knew that it was going to change everything, and boy, did it. Uh, we sold everything we had. Uh, we got rid of everything that had been our goal and our life's aim prior to May the 6th, and we set our sights on preparing ourselves to fulfill the call that God had placed on our life. Well, we were packing up and getting out of town. We were going to move to Graceville, Florida and attend the Florida Baptist Theological College. And D-Day was August 10th for us to pull out. So August 5th was a Sunday and our pastor at that time, Dr. Craig Connor, he said, tell you what, before you leave, I, I want you to preach. So August 5th, 
I want you to preach that Sunday night. I said, all right, I will. So knowing absolutely nothing, scared to death, but taking this very seriously, I was consumed with preaching on August 5th. So August 5th comes, and to my astonishment, man, the Lord just loaded my wagon. And I stood up to preach, and 50 minutes later, I sat down ringing wet. I mean, I was just exhausted. And after it was over with, the church just basically stood up in unison and said, Oh my God, uh, this boy's going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you did just a wonderful job. Are you sure you've never preached before? We can't believe that you just delivered that type of word for your very first message. Well, I didn't know at that time, but since I have had a professor that taught me that compliments are like perfume. They smell good, but don't drink them because they'll kill you. So on that night, I drank me a good belly full of perfume, thinking, you know, this preaching thing's going to be easier than I thought it was. I've got this. So I left, went to the Florida Baptist Theological College, and I had been there about two months, and I called Brother Craig and said, look, I'm going to be home on such and such date in October. If you'd like to be off, I'll be glad to preach that Sunday night. He said, sure, come on. So I spent the entire week calling all of my friends, everybody that I knew in Gulfport, Mississippi. Y'all come to Michael Memorial because I am preaching on Sunday night. So I was thinking, boy, I'm going to wow these boys. Are they going to just sit there slack-jawed and most of them probably going to get saved because they've never even heard the Word of God and uh, this is going to be a grand slam. <laughs> you know what happened. You know, I mean, I'd done been a, I'd done been a, been a theology major for two months by this time. So look, I was thinking, you know, I've still got about 12 more years of education ahead of me before I get this, but y'all might as well go ahead and start calling me doctor now because I got it. <laughs> well, I stood up that night, and about five minutes after I stood up, I ran out of things to say. And son, I will tell you, Big sweat drops began to pop out on my forehead, began to run down my back. It was a total, total disaster. I mean, I fell flat on my face right in front of God and everybody who had ever known me and everybody who hadn't even remotely known me. I mean, I just laid an egg and I just fell flat that night. And I can remember... <laughs> another preaching student who was preaching one night and he had the same attitude as I did and he was all cocky and he walked up to the pulpit thinking he was God's gift of ministry with his chest stuck out and he was strutting like a peacock and after about five minutes he fell and he came down with his tail tucked between his legs and sat on the front row next to his pastor. He said, Pastor, what happened? What went wrong? And the pastor said, Well, son... If you had went up to the pulpit like you came down from the pulpit, you would have came down from the pulpit like you went up to the pulpit. So it makes a lot of sense to me. But nonetheless, after that night in October, after being a theology study student for two months, I was ready to quit. I was done. It was a horrible experience. I never wanted to preach again. But you know, I was raised on a farm. My daddy was a calf roper and a rodeo cowboy and I was raised either on a horse or around horses and here was one of my daddy's rules if a horse if a horse if now let me say it like this because here here it is if you got thowed by a horse 
You didn't have the option of not getting back on him immediately, right, Mr. Carroll? If you get thawed, and by the way, it is, it is thawed. Let me give you all some cowboy vocabulary. <laughs> if you say, I was horseback riding yesterday, and I was thrown by my horse, you have no business on a horse. <laughs> How many of you plan to work the rodeo this, in October? Well, let me give you some rodeo vocabulary, all right? Here it is. If you get thawed by a horse... My daddy says, you got to get right back on him or else he'll buffalo you for the rest of your life. Now, how many of you didn't even know a horse could buffalo? <laughs> but a horse will buffalo you if you let him. So, uh, you know, one day, uh, man, I was just a little old bitty guy. Uh, I rode a, bit, a horse that was so big I couldn't get on him. I had to lead him out to a clover patch. And when he had been down to get a bite of clover, I'd lay across his neck. And when he would lift his neck up, I'd slide right down and get in the saddle. Well, that old horse, one day, I was off riding him, and he heard my daddy's truck coming down the road. And one of my daddy's rules was, no matter where you are, you never run him toward the barn. Always, you be in control when you start heading back to the house. Well, this old horse heard my daddy's truck, and that got his attention. But he couldn't take it when he heard my daddy open the barn door, because he knew that meant vittle time. So there was only one thing standing between him and supper, and he knew that he had to get rid of me. I was that thing that was standing between him and supper. So sure enough, he throwed me. <laughs> and the horse came up to the barn with saddle and bridle, and my daddy knew what happened. He said, well, <laughs> he got throwed. So sure enough, he started walking and with the horse, and he found me about halfway, and uh, I was all broke up and, and trying not to cry because cowboys don't cry, right? But boy, on the inside, I was bawling. He said, son, what happened? And I said, daddy, I don't know. He just went crazy, but I am not getting back on that horse. And he said, not only are you not getting back on this horse, but you're getting back on this horse right now. So I had to get back on the horse and, and, and basically prove that I wasn't scared of him so the horse wouldn't buffalo me for the rest of his life. Well, Joshua chapter 8 is kind of that experience. In chapter 7, Israel got thawed. Now, chapter 8, they got to get back on the horse. Have you ever been thawed? I mean, if you've attempted to do anything for the Lord, you have got thawed. That's all there is to it. Everybody's got bumps and bruises, banged up from being thawed and, and bounced off the ground once or twice. But notice what happens here in chapter number 8. And I think God addresses that just like my daddy did with me. Notice, notice what God says when He speaks to Joshua in chapter or verse 1 of chapter 8. Do not fear or be dismayed. You see why did He say that? Because Joshua just got, just got throwed. I mean, He really did. And now it's time in chapter 8 to get back on the horse. You know, it's all right to get throwed, but it's not all right to stay down. And so many times this is what happens. This is a mentality with us as believers. Well, well, Pastor Richie, I got hurt. Well, all of us get hurt. I mean, that's life, is it not? Uh, you, can, you can be hurt, but here's what the Bible doesn't give us permission to do. The Bible does not give us permission to stay hurt. As a matter of fact, the command of Scripture is for us to be healed. The command of Scripture for us is to get back on the horse. And my daddy was right. The longer you wait between the time that you get thawed 
And the time that you get back on the horse, the harder it becomes to saddle up and get back on him. So the Lord pushes Joshua right back to the saddle and wants him to get right back in, uh, right back on the horse. So let's pick up now in chapter 8 and, and let's notice because here's the thing. You know, if I would have been spiritually mature the second time I preached, I would have been able to know that I was headed for disaster. And here's the sign of spiritual maturity. Knowing that you're headed for disaster before disaster strikes. You see, everybody has 20-20 vision in the rearview mirror, don't we? We can look back and see where we went wrong after we've done been knocked flat on our back. But here's what a spiritually mature person does. They can see the storm clouds brewing. They can see the horse getting antsy. They know that something's about to happen and therefore they've got time to take evasive action in order to avert the coming disaster. So I think this text divides very easily for us into two sections or this message. And let's look at it like this. Number one, let's look at this, this section in comparison with chapter 6 and 7 as repentance before and after. And first, let's look at before. Because you see, before a disaster strikes, i.e. in chapter 7, there ought to be some indicators that, repent, that, that disaster was coming. So let's look at it like this and answer the question first. What are the indicators that repentance is needed? Hey, you ever had to repent? How about 10 or 11 times a day? Huh? I mean, really, isn't that where we live most of the time? So uh, how do you know when repentance is needed? How do you know when you are the man, when you are the woman who stands in danger of experiencing peril and disaster if we continue on the same course and continue the same uh, uh, track that we are currently on? Well, I think there are several principles embedded in this text that will answer that question for us. So, how do you know when repentance is needed? Number one, when personal preference outweighs corporate purity and purpose. There are two P's in that blank. When personal preference outweighs corporate purity and purpose. Now, let's pull this from the life of Achan because notice with me in chapter number 6. I want you to see this. Uh, chapter number 6 and verse number 21. This is when the lot has fallen on Achan. He's been discovered. He's the one who has transgressed. Notice what he says. When I saw, underline that word I. And then in, later on that verse... I coveted them. And then attached with the, with the Hebrew verb took is also the personal pronoun, first person, I. So we see that Achan in chapter 6, he completely put his personal wants above the purity and purpose of the body as a whole. And here's what Achan said. I really don't care about any of y'all Here's the only thing that's driving my life right now. It's what I want. It's what I prefer. 
And can I say to you that we are just ate up with that today? And I think we're ate up with it because, you know, we are preached that message more than you can imagine. You may not realize this, but at the turn of the century, not the turn of, of 2000, but 1900, there was a shift in mainline Baptist theology. And theology went away from being God-focused and being obsessed with God to being obsessed with this when American culture came in and the Industrial Revolution and all those things are taking place. And I'm telling you, it affected the preaching in the United States of America. Now all of a sudden, God's not the center of preaching, but we are. And here's what we start thinking. You just track with me a little while and see if this ain't true. You've probably been told this. You may have even thought this. We began to develop theological statements like this. People say, well, I realized that God loved me so much until He would have sent His Son to die for me even if I was the only person on earth. Ever heard anything like that? Huh? Let me tell you what that is. That is hypothetical, theological hogwash. Because here's what God did. God didn't send His Son just to die for me. He sent His Son to die for His people. And you see, that's different. I am not the ultimate purpose, but God's people are the reason why He did what He did. And when we start thinking that it's all about me, when we start hearing folks preach that it's all about you, before long, listen to me, you might not know it, but you're going to start believing it. And before long, the most important thing is not the church, but me. And that's exactly where old Aiken was. Personal preference, what he wanted was more important than what God had said about the purity of the body and the purpose of the body. And ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. I on a regular basis have to fight against selfishness in my own heart and mind and this is the paradigm I use. I cannot measure my actions by what I want and what I prefer. Did you know that? I have to measure my actions not by my wants but what is good for the body. And that's when folks start arriving at spiritual maturity. And I'm telling you today, because of our man-centered, predisposed, theological positions, we have taught folk that it's all about you and you're the most important. You're the apple of God's eye and folk are believing that. And the first time that something goes against what they want, they take their ball and they go to the house. Huh? There's never any thought about, hey, is this action good for the body? Does this action help promote corporate purity and help us achieve corporate purpose? And old Lakin wasn't thinking that at all. So how do you know when you need to repent? When you start using the word I, 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 I. What about me and what about mine? No, here's what good theology does. Theology doesn't focus on me and mine. Theology by nature focuses on God, hence theos. So here's how we make our decisions. Not based on me and mine, but based on Him and His. What does this do for His glory? What will this do for His people? 
And that's the basis of ethics from a theological perspective. Now man, I just challenge you to begin to chart your course of action not based on what I want, not based on my preferences, not my opinions, but based on corporate purpose and purity, based on Him and His rather than me and mine. Check out number two. How do you know when repentance is needed? Well, repentance is needed, number one, when personal preference outweighs corporate purity. Number two, repentance is needed when we take carnal advice over divine direction. That's 8-3 rather than 7-3. Now, notice what it is that is going on here. Well, let, I tell you what, no, I, I was not totally wrong because 7-3 is the parallel to this. So notice in chapter 3, they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Who was it? The spies that Joshua sent up. So the spies that Joshua sent up said, Don't let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men can go up. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. Now check this out. Prior to this, Joshua didn't do a thing unless God said something. After this, Joshua doesn't do a thing unless God says something. But in this instance, Joshua somehow or another just immediately took the advice of his men, maybe did not even run it by God, and he got in trouble. And boy, I want to tell you, we have a tendency to do that as well, don't we? I mean, if you notice today, there's an expert about everything out there from marriage. It's, it's, it's amazing to me, most, uh, most of the folk give an expert advice in marriage counseling, they've never even been married. How does that happen? Same way with child raising. Most of the folk giving advice have never had a kid. It, it's amazing to me how this happens. But nonetheless, most of the expert advice today flows from Freudian pop psychology. And friend, that is diametrically opposed to what thus saith the Lord says. So when you got to make a decision, who are you listening to? Who has your ear? And boy, I want to tell you, it's good to have wise, wise uh, folks speak into your life, but those wise folk will normally point you back to what God has said. So we're in need of repentance when we're more prone to listen to other people rather than what God says. Number next, repentance is needed when personal preference outweighs corporate purity. And purpose, when we take carnal advice over divine direction. But then, number three, when little things become big problems. Now look at this. Look in chapter, let me show you again because, I, I, like I say, I wasn't totally off because three is the parallel. They returned to Joshua and they said, Don't let all the people go up. And why? Look, in, look at the end of that verse, the very last clause. For they are few. Do you know what Ai was in comparison to Jericho? Listen to me. It was a dot on a map. That's all it was. It was basically a roadside park where people would stop off on their way to Jericho or Bethel or somewhere else. Ai was nothing. So how do you know when repentance is needed? It's when little bitty things become great big problems. Ai should have been no problem at all for Israel. But Ai, the smallest of all of the cities in their sight, is the one that took them to the ground. 
And can I say again, my goodness, hey, I, I, I just had to laugh at this this week. You know why? Because in my 12 years of ex- seminary experience and accumulating these degrees, do you know what they focused on in training me? Son, listen to me. They taught me well about how to identify and talk about the superlapsarian theory in Genesis chapter number 1 and 2. They taught me well about the monosophite controversies. They taught me well about the heresy of monarchical modalism as it relates to Trinitarian theology. They taught me well how to grammatically analyze a Greek text. They taught me well about Hebrew exposition. And if I were king of seminaries today, you know what I'd say? I'd say, man, that's good. But y'all need to start teaching folk about how to deal with some little things. Because in all of my experience as a pastor, I have never one time had to deal with those big things. I'd like to come to church just one Sunday and find that y'all are just in a frizzy over monar- monarchical modalism. Because I could help you, brothers. <laughs> Listen here. I, I feel like, a, I feel like a, a pilot who's been trained to fly F-22s at supersonic speed and deliver radar-guided precision missiles. And all he gets to do is fly a kite on a windy day. (laughs) That's what I feel like. Grant, that's where you're headed, man. That's what they're teaching you. (laughs) They're giving you all this stuff, and here's what you're going to deal with all your ministry. Pastor, somebody hurt my feelings. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Can I just say to you that more damage has been done to the church over the histories of its existence by petty, pathetic little things than all of the theological heresy that you can shove up in one pile with a bulldozer. It has. Can I I, I borrow a a Cliff Myers... A Cliff Meyerism here. <laughs> here's, here's a Cliff Meyerism. <laughs> In the past couple of weeks, we've had the biggest dump truck load of dudas dumped on us than we've ever had in our life. And you know what it's over? Not something that's important. Not the, not, not the nature and mission of the church. Not the deity of Christ. Uh, nothing that's big and important has eternal significance, but something little like, he hurt my feelings. And we got a dump truck load of dude that's dumped right on top of us over hurt feelings. Man, listen, when little things become big problems, repentance is needed because something is bad out of kilter. Man, I promise you, life is too short. Hear me, hear me. Life is too short to make mountains out of molehills. It really is. And we've got to learn the difference between important things and insignificant things. And let insignificant things go. Because something as insignificant as the way I feel ain't going to measure up to a hill of beans in eternity. It's not. But if I take my feelings and make a mountain out of it, and ruin purity and purpose and all of that in light of it. Friend, we got trouble. We've got trouble. So when is repentance needed? 
Well, here's three reasons. Let me give you number four. When things are more important than obedience. And again, I thought I was, I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken because <laughs> this really comes right back into play. Except here it's not, it's not 7-3. We, we go back to chapter 6 and it deals with the things that Achan saw. What Achan was consumed with was not the glory of God, not the corporate purity of Israel, not the purpose of Israel, not the health of Israel, not the success of Israel, but what he was enthralled with was a, a robe from Shinar, verse number 21, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold that weighed 50 shekels. And when things, hear me, when things become more important than our obedience, friend, there's a storm brewing on the horizon. And if we don't get some things right and repent, that storm's going to rain on us and strike us with all of its fury. Because things just can't be more important than the things that God identifies as being important, i.e. obedience and purity and purpose and all of those things. So here are some indicators. Hey, on the dashboard of life, warning lights ought to be going off Bells and whistles ought to be sounding when any of these things right here come into play. In my life, in your life, in our life, just the way it is. Now, check out number next, because here's the good part. Now, and look, this was the hard part of this message. Here's the good part. Are you ready? Because number one, what we wanted to see in repentance before and after was indicators that repentance is needed. Number two, the second half of this is we want to see indicators that repentance has succeeded has succeeded. Now, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, theologically was uncomfortable with using that word, but I, I do think it's a good word. How do you know when your repentance has been effective? How do you know when repentance has done what it's supposed to do? And that, that word repentance means that I, I change, I have a change of mind that issues into a changed behavior. I was going this way, but God, you've shown me I was wrong, and now I'm going to do a U-turn, and I'm going this way. So how do you know when it's been effective? And here's the indicators that repentance has been effective and successful. Number one... It's kind of an argument from silence, but nonetheless, I think it shouts loud in this text. Here's the first indicator that repentance is successful. Number one, God forgets our sin. Check it out. God talked about nothing but sin in chapter 7. That's all He talked about because that was the main problem. Israel, you want to know why you're being defeated? Because my displeasure on your life? Because you are tolerating sin in the camp? And therefore, we got to get this right. In chapter 7, God talked about nothing but sin. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like every time you open the Bible, all He's talking about is your sin? You ever feel like when you go to church, all the preacher's talking about is, He must be reading my mail, dear God. How did He know? You see, when we need repentance, that's what God talks about. But get this, after repentance, after repentance, God doesn't mention it again. Check out chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts, it's almost like a brand new day, Jerry. And God never brings up the issue again. It's gone. 
Hey, I, I love what the Bible says about this. Here's what God does to our sin when we repent and confess, and it's under the blood of Christ. Here's what the Bible says He does. The Bible says He puts it as far as east is from west. You know how far that is? It's infinite. There is no east pole or no west pole. It just goes on forever and ever. He puts it as far as east is from west. That's what He does with our sin. You know what else He does? The Bible says He casts it behind His back. It's out of His sight. He does this purposefully and consciously. That's the effectiveness of repentance. You know what else the Bible says He does in Psalms? The Bible says He buries it in the depths of the sea. You know what the Titanic is sitting on two and a half miles below the, below the ocean surface? Your sin. That's what God did with it. It ain't coming back and you can't go back and get it. He puts it, buries it under the depths of the sea. Here's what else the Bible says God does with our sin when we repent. The Bible says He remembers it no more. Now look, this sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a paradox. The God who knows everything chooses to forget our sin when we repent of it. Hey, can I say to you, if God forgets it, you don't have any right remembering it either. Huh? Forget it. Move on. Do you notice in chapter 8, Joshua didn't sit around and gravel and say, Oh, but I'm just not worthy to be the commander anymore because I failed in chapter 7. One of my men transgressed. He didn't do that. Why? Because repentance is just that effective. Once it's over with, it's over with. Israel, mount up. Let's get back on the horse and we're not going to get thawed anymore. God forgets our sin. That's how you know that that repentance has been successful. Next thing you know, you pick up the Bible and God doesn't talk about that anymore. You know why? It's gone. Next thing you know, you come to church and you don't hear that anymore. You know why? It's, It's gone. I had a boy tell me one time on the way out of church, he said, Preacher, I just don't think I'm coming to church anymore. I said, man, why not? He said, because every time I come, I leave feeling worse than when I came. I said, well, if you'd repent, you'd leave feeling better than you came. Guess what he did? He left. (laughs) Repentance is successful, and God doesn't bring up our sin anymore. You don't bring it up anymore either. I won't bring it up anymore. It's gone. Check out number next. Indicators that repentance has succeeded. God forgets our sin. Number two, God breaks his silence. Oh, wait a minute. God begins to talk again. See, the only thing he talked about prior to chapter 8 was your sin. Chapter 6, he was talking with them about what to do in Jericho. Chapter 7 comes and the only thing that God talks about is sin and how to handle it. Chapter 8 comes after repentance and God opens the floodgates then and begins to communicate with Joshua. Does he not? I mean, look at all what he said. He breaks his silence. In uh, in 8, chapter number 1, the Lord said, isn't that cool? Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear, be dismayed. All right, Joshua, let's put this behind us. Don't be scared. You get back on that horse, buddy. Then it's what he said, take all the people of war with you. Arise and go up to Ai. Look at this. See, 
I've given it into your hand. What did he do? He gave a familiar charge. Familiar with what? Familiar with chapter 6. Notice what he said in chapter 6, verse number 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and with its valiant warriors. Now look at me again in verse 1. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. It's almost the exact thing. God gave him a familiar charge. Use the word see both times. Now let me ask you this. If you looked at Jericho and it was tightly shut up, would your conclusion be, yes, yeah, mine? <laughs> no, it wouldn't be, oh my God, it's impenetrable. There's nothing we can do about it. Here's why you need God's perspective. You know that problem that you're having to face this week? You look at it from your perspective and it's got you. You look at it from God's perspective and He says, see, I've given it to you. And that's what he says here in, 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 in chap, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. Look at Ai. I've given it to you. God breaks his silence and he gives to Joshua a familiar charge. Man, isn't it cool when God gives us repeat material? <laughs> it really is. And that's what he did to Joshua. But notice the second thing he said. Not only did he give a familiar charge... But this time he gave a different concession. Look at the concession. This time he says uh, in verse number 2, You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king, but this time you shall take only the spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Now how is that different from Jericho? What did he say about Jericho? And all the plunder, what did he say? He said, don't touch it, don't take it. He said, you kill everything, and the gold and silver, put that in where? In the treasury of the house of the Lord. So in chapter 1, don't take anything. In chapter 2, this time, as much as y'all can cart out of there, take it. Now here's the reality. Look at old, look at old, look at old Achan. If he'd have just waited. Who knows how long? Maybe two, maybe three, maybe four days. God would have freely given him what cost him his life in chapter 7. Isn't it amazing? So many times, it's not that the answer is no. Hey, God is not some cosmic killjoy trying to keep you from achieving goals and dreams. He's not. The answer may not be no for you. It may not be no for me. You know what it might be? Not now. But guess what? Your AI is coming, and then I'm going to give it to you. So he gave a different concession. So just because the answer today is don't touch it, doesn't mean that the answer next week's not going to be as much as you can gather up. Take it with you. It's yours. Look at number next. When God starts to speak, he gave a familiar charge. He gave a different concession. But he also gave a specific plan. A specific plan. I mean, you see, God has more at stake in this than we do. If we are about God's purpose, God's going to give us direction, is He not? I mean, He really is. Because again, this is about Him and His. It's not so much about me and mine or us and ours. It's about Him and His. So He has a vested interest in it. So He's going to give specific plan. And notice what His specific plan was. He said, Joshua, He said, you're going to do to... To, to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho. And here's the plan. Look how simple it is in verse number 2, the very last sentence. 
set an ambush for the city behind it. There's God's plan. You know what? Here's the here's good thing about Joshua being the commander-in-chief. He didn't have to be the world's most brilliant military strategist, did he? All he had to do was walk with God. Because every battle they came to, Joshua didn't have to sit down with his generals and strategize. All he had to do was listen to God. And God told him exactly what to do. Now look, we think life's complicated, but it really isn't. We can't improve on this. We really can't. And God's got a word for us. Because He's more concerned about what it is that we're doing. He has more interest in it probably than we do. He gave a specific plan. Now let me rush and dovetail this one with the next one because here's what's cool. This is what God did. This is how you know when... Indicate when, when, when repentance has been successful. Indicators that repentance has succeeded. Number one, God forgets his sin. Number two, God breaks his silence. Number three, up, oh, I was getting ahead of myself, we recover our strength. We recover our strength. Have, have, you ever, have you ever followed some of the Psalms of David when he was in sin? He would talk about his bones aching. He would talk about having no physical strength, no energy, no joy. And by golly, when he would repent and God would take it away, David would be bounced back up with his heart writing praise songs. And that's what happens to us. I want to tell you something. The most exhausting thing in the world is to run from God carrying our sin. It'll wear you out. It'll zap your energy. It'll zap your strength. Life will be miserable. You'll get to the point where you'll say, like Job, God, just kill me. Just kill me because life's not worth living. But man, when we repent, we recover our strength. And notice what happened. That, that's what went on here. Uh, notice with me again in, in verse number 3. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. He sent 30... Look, this time he sent 30,000 men. <laughs> Ten times what they sent up there when they got waxed. Now the strength of Israel is on the march again. Why? Because repentance has been successful. Joshua's hearing from God... And now they're not destined for failure. They're not marching into a storm, so they're marching into victory. Now, here's the part I almost skipped ahead to get to because this is the cool stuff. God forgets our sin. God breaks the silent. We recover our strength, and here it is. Our past failures become salvageable. I mean, notice the plan that God gave. He said, set an ambush from Manhattan. Did you see in verses 4 through 7? You see, their their last failure, here's what happened. Those men went up there and the men from Ai came out and started waxing them and they turned around and ran. And they struck 36 men down from behind while they were running. Hey, here's the deal, man. You ever turn and run and you're in trouble. (laughs) I mean, let's go back to cowboying, can we? Our cowboy vocabulary thawed and buffaloed. Well, here's another thing you don't ever do. You you don't ever turn your back on a bull when he's after you. Because he's going to run you down from behind. That's all there is to it. See, y'all going to be able to talk to these cowboys now up the rodeo this year, ain't you? Man, you really got thawed today. They'll be impressed. But I tell you what, you didn't let him buffalo you. Now, where was I? (laughs) Our past failures become salvageable. 
Here's what happens. God took their failure and He used their failure for a victory. Because Joshua went up there and it looked like they were failing again. It looked like they were being chased down. It looked like the men were winning. Oh, but they didn't know that there was an ambush set and there was about 27, 28,000 men waiting in the bushes over there for them to get out of town. You see what God did? He used their past failure in order to secure their next victory. Now watch me. That's just how good God is. And I'm telling you, every one of us have a closet full of skeletons and past failures. But God can use those failures. He can redeem them. That's how powerful the cross is. God can even take our failures and use them for His glory. Man, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what God saves you out of. It doesn't matter what you have fallen into. If you have repented, I'm telling you, it's gone. And now God can use that as He can salvage that and use it for His good and glory. It doesn't matter. I mean, what, what, what type of addiction was it? Was it drugs? Guess what? When you repent and you're cleaned up, you've got a built-in ministry to folk who struggle with that. Huh? God can use that. Hey, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what jail you've gone to. God can use that. He can salvage that. Don't give up on yourself because you've had a past failure. By golly, that can be the springboard which God propels you into victory for His honor and glory in the future. No matter what it is, don't give up on yourself because God's not giving up on us. Thank the Lord, huh? And look, we all blow it. That's the nature of the beast. Have you come to the conclusion yet that you're not Jesus? We're going to blow it. But thank God He can salvage even our failures and use them for His good and His glory. Now there's one last thing on here that I didn't have room to put on your, on your listening guide. So here it is. Let me give it to you and we're done. Indicators that repentance has succeeded. Number one, God forgets our sin. Can anybody just say thank the Lord? Huh? Aren't you glad He's not up there to, to keeping a record? Number two, God breaks His silence. Number three, we recover our strength. Number four, our past failures become salvageable. And here's number five. We take our city. Because isn't that what they did? They took the city of Ai. They took it. They could not do that as long as they were living in chapter 7 with sin in the camp. But now repentance repentance has come. Repentance has been accepted. It's been successful. It's been effective. And now AI is nothing more than a bump in the road. And they just barrel right over the top of it just like that. Hey, hey, what's your AI? What is that thing that the last time you tried it, you got thawed? God wants you to take that thing. Hey, what is our city? Is it Bonifay? Man, I'd love for Grace Church to just take by storm the city of Bonifay, huh? I would love to see Bonifay come to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would love for Grace Church to have to plant three more just like us within the city limits of Bonifay. I'd love that. 
I would love Grace Church to take our city, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in Uganda, whether it's in, 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 in Peru, no matter where it is, I would love Grace Church to take our city. And friend, that's what happens when we come clean and repentance has been successful. Well, repentance before and after. Man, I hope today the dashboard of your plane is lighting up with indicators that it's been successful. If not, if it's lighting up with indicators that repentance is needed, isn't it good to know? Just like Blake read this morning, if we confess our sin, He is a grudge-holding God that never forgets and never cleans you fully. Huh? If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So man, here's our choice today. We can sit outside Ai, licking our wounds, or we can get back on the horse that throwed us and take our city for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, let's get back in the saddle. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you always meet us right where we are. And God, there's no way we could orchestrate that. It's just something that takes place. It's it's your divine intervention into our lives. And God, we thank you that you never give up on us. We thank you that repentance is even an option let alone as good as it can possibly be as we've described today. So God, I pray in Jesus' name that Grace Church is going to take our city for the glory of the one who is worthy of all glory, power, and dominion forever and ever. So God, would you work in us, work through us, but God, would you be glorified as we respond to you in faith and repentance, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Hey, Dr. John is here.